morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome once again to our time together to those of you who are in our area here in Southern California, as well as those of you who are sprinkled like that delicious sugar that we put on our Christmas cookies all around the world. We want to welcome you to this time together. And we want to invite you to watch us. Uh, we are here every Saturday, whether it's on our LOUC.org uh, page or whether it's on our YouTube uh, page or whether it's on our podcast. You simply click LOUC Sabbath School on any place that you get your podcasts. Give us a listen. Tell us how you think. We're excited to talk to you about this idea of deception and what we are to hold firm to. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your love, your blessings. Thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the times you give us to commune with family and friends. We pray that you allow us to remember who you are and what you have called us to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, I have my co-host, my friend, my colleague in ministry, my Joey. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Just a little bit sleepy, a little bit tired. It's been a busy week, but um, always glad to be here with all of you um, and with you, Miguel. So. It's always good to see you. We were off last week, as you know. We were supplanted by the cutest of the cute, our children who were doing uh, the yearly Christmas play here at Loma Linda. We hope you enjoyed it. And we're just so thankful um, both to the kids and to our lay leaders, leaders like Amy Leugert, who does a phenomenal job with our children's ensembles. Yeah, I, I hope everybody got an opportunity to watch that. I know that we skipped that lesson, but it was absolutely worth it. <laughs> the kids, they always do an amazing job, especially under the leadership of Amy. Well, we're back now. And the lesson's title is for this week. It was... End Time Deceptions, and that is a interesting title. Um, it's a very Adventist title. Uh, it's a title that I think uh, we're going to deviate a bit from today as we look at two particular passages, and we just think about what it is that matters. And then maybe we have a discussion with how to be sensitive, particularly in places where there's grief, with uh, other people's beliefs and how do we hold our own beliefs and hold space for people's beliefs, particularly in moments of grief. Mm, yeah, that's good. I, I love that. I love the journey that we're going to be on. It is, it is a challenging one when we start talking about what other people hold dear, um, how we talk about it and how we express it is very important. Mm -hmm. Even though we're not saying that we shouldn't believe certain things and hold on. 
Um, it, it is a interesting time that we live in. Um, the, the lesson noted that our contemporary world has become a melting pot of supernatural and the mystical. I thought that was an, again, interesting way of putting it. I will say that there does seem to be a lot more blurring of the lines of tr traditional formulations of how we divided people up and divided different groups up, especially now since um, many of the younger generations often see, um, often see Christianity as a, a salad bar mm -hmm. rather than a, a preset menu, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where they can just pick and choose from different things that really resonate with them more rather than, than saying, this is what, mm. you know, this is what I'm given. So I'm going to accept all of it, all mm. of, you know, as a whole. So um, it is a different time that we live in. And what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be Adventist? What does it mean to follow God in, in all of this is, is an interesting conversation to have. It absolutely is. Now, you mentioned uh, that the, uh, the lesson talks about our current world as a melting pot of two things, uh, spiritualism and mysticism. Mm -hmm. And what, is, what I find really, really interesting is just how language has evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, because these two words, uh, depending on who you are, and depending on where you're located, and also depending on what epoch you're speaking in, mean completely different things. So uh, I caught a little bit, and I think this is what you're referring to when you say it, it was an interesting formulation. I caught a little bit of a negative connotation, particularly with these with these two terms. Mm -hmm. And I, I ought probably, and we ought probably to begin by just admitting that not only within Christendom at large, but also within Adventism, these two terms have not always had negative connotations, mm. particularly, particularly when we're talking about mysticism. Uh, the important thing I, I think we need to realize and we need to recognize, and maybe it's uh, the first step in, per, in establishing a conversation that is both respectful, but also is clear about the things that we believe in, mm. is to realize that language can be loaded, mm. but it also, but because it language is loaded, it also is neutral. Mm. And so instead of looking at terminology like spiritualism or mysticism in with negative connotations, uh, we, we probably ought to recognize that language by its nature is neutral. And so a lot of the weight that we place upon our language has to do with our experiences, mm. um, our particular cultural context. Uh, the person that prepared the lesson is a rather, rather uh, brilliant scholar, Alberto Trim uh, from Brazil. He is now he was an associate director at the, of the White Estate. Now he's uh, associate director at Biblical Research Institute. But we need to understand maybe that in South America, the term mysticism might mean something different mm -hmm. than in Southern California to a younger millennial or Gen Zer. And so I think uh, that ought to be a caveat before we jump into our conversation that language itself is neutral. Yeah, that's a great that's a great um, point that you're making that that words are just containers that we infuse meaning to, and words mean different things to different people at different times. 
I mean, take the word gay, for mm -hmm. example, 50, 60 years ago, the word gay meant something very different than it, right. it does now, right? So um, making sure that we understand that just by saying the word, we in a different context, it could mean something very, mm -hmm. very different to those people. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that the meaning behind it isn't, is appropriate or inappropriate. It's just saying that the word itself um, may not mean what you think it means in a different context. Right, right. So we, uh, a practical example uh, with particularly the word mysticism is if you uh, have uh, connections, for example, with anyone in the Eastern tradition, the word mysticism has a completely different uh, weight and it is central to the way they live out their Christian faith. And it has nothing to do with practices that one would consider out uh, unorthodox or heteroorthodox as it pertains to the broader umbrella of Christianity. Um, we talk, for example, in the Eastern Church about monastic, Eastern monastic mysticism, and that simply means uh, the art of practicing spiritual disciplines. So when we talk about this idea, for example, of prayer, uh, they would uh, use that as one of the terms that follows under this broader umbrella, which is mysticism. And so perhaps it ought to be reminded, as you're saying, that words are containers. And they, we ought to be very careful then when we use them because they are, they are a precise tool, particularly when we're trying to expand the tent and speak across denominations or across ideological or cultural contexts. Uh, probably uh, we it, it would do us better to use less loaded language uh, just as a matter of enriching the discourse with people from other faith traditions. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, so when an, if an Eastern Orthodox um, a believer comes up to you and starts talking about mysticism, just be aware that what they mean by that word may be different than what we have in mind Correct. from an Adventist perspective. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Or... Um, even uh, generationally, right? Yeah. So if, if somebody that's in their 20s uh, comes and says, hey, the music at the worship service was mystical, it provided with a mystical experience, that means something very different mm. than I think what Dr. Trim has in mind as he was preparing uh, the content for this lesson. So it's not just facilitating cross-denominational uh, uh, dialogue. It also to keep in mind the different implications that these terms that this, these terms have can facilitate our cross-generational conversations. Yeah, it is important to note that, however, that that there is a almost almost a visceral reaction to that word from those that grew up with mm -hmm. a certain tradition with a certain background so it's understandable that if somebody uses that word even though they may use be using it in a different mm -hmm. way it is important to also recognize that for for some people it does create a visceral reaction so that mutual understanding is very important trying to understand that how other people may use the word is different than the way that mm -hmm. i use the word yeah, and also just understanding our own history and our own framework, right? The theological framework that we use in order to experience faith. So just very briefly, and I know some of our friends know this out there, Adventism grows out as a response to the Second Great Awakening in America. And the Second Great Awakening is this religious revival that is very 
for lack of a better word, mystically oriented, right? It had to do with feelings. And I want to be very careful uh, because I do, I do not want to denigrate those experiences, experiences that people have that are uh, either mystical or experiential or feeling oriented. I think they have a place within the broader conversation of Christendom. But Adventism is reacting to that and is saying it cannot just be emotive. Religion can't just be an emotive experience. Uh, there are, There is also uh, some intellectual components to that. And so because that's the origin of Adventism and kind of the, the context in which Adventism was birthed, then we by nature are going to be suspicious. Um, and, and I love the way you put it. We're going to have visceral reactions to terms uh, that we're not comfortable or as well acquainted with. And mm -hmm. that kind of uh, reared its head up in the lesson um, as we, again, understand that an Adventist, uh, an, a South American Adventist, a South American Adventist working at the BRI um, is simply reflecting this theological tradition that we have as Adventists. But that theological tradition isn't a monolith within Adventism or within Christendom. Yeah. I mean, it's very true that our experiences, not just individually, but collectively as a community, does impact the way that we respond to even how scripture mm -hmm. reads, right? So we had we had early in our history some bad experiences with how the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. was utilized and and how uh, how it was how the Holy Spirit was interpreted and charismata, the Holy Spirit's workings were mm -hmm. um, were um, described, mm -hmm. and so because of those things. For a long time, we in Adventists were very, very uncomfortable with anything to do with the Holy Spirit. So much so that it took years of us actually studying and saying, no, the Holy Spirit is fully a part of the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit really is the one, the, 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 the member of the Godhead that we are, that has been entrusted that we have been entrusted to now as as followers of Christ here on earth. When Jesus said he left, he left the Holy Spirit to empower us. And there is the Holy Spirit is obviously working throughout mm -hmm. the book of Acts. So um, especially as a, a movement that began um, with a prophet, right? Mm -hmm. um, not that the prophet began the movement, but that that there was a prophet in the beginnings of our movement. Um, you think we'd be a lot more comfortable with the workings of the Holy Spirit, because, but because of those negative interactions, those negative experiences, it's for many years it made us uncomfortable. And only now are we starting to embrace some some of the amazing things that the Holy Spirit does for us, and recognizing those things and leaning into those those as well. That's I think that's that's right, and that only that not only uh, has to do with our theology, it has to do with kind of the philosophy that we employ to look at life, right? Mm -hmm. um, another word that uh, kind of has become very loaded, and again the lesson uses it, is postmodern. Um, I don't know any postmoderns anymore, <laughs> um, but again, that's I think that loaded word signifies some things. Mm -hmm. Postmodernism as an intellectual movement, right, is a response to uh, the brutality that is the that is World War II, particularly in France. Um, it's kind of the death of this idea that human beings, if left to their own devices, were going to usher in this era 
of peace and prosperity and joy. And to be frank, it seemed like it was working all the way up to modernity. And then uh, the 20th century kind of threw all of that uh, into, into an upheaval. And so the word postmodern was kind of this reaction to this ideology that said, we human beings ultimately have uh, truth and we can uh, usher in, as we said, this era of peace and prosperity. So postmodern then said, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as ultimate truth. And then that gave rise to a whole lot of uh, ideologies that spread probably from the 1950s to the 1980s. Uh, by the time you and I were born in the early 80s, um, the, the shift and the conversational shift had moved again. Mm -hmm. And so now there's, uh, when we talk about a postmodern reading of scripture or a postmodern understanding of society, we're actually talking about how the world work, worked in the 1950s. Mm. Um, if you engage in a conversation or in a dialogue with uh, the broader world, uh, just beware that the term postmodern is a term that is actually very rapidly falling out of use because we, as a, as a society, have agreed that not all truth is created equal, that mm. there are some things uh, that are bad that we as as a people can can agree to. And so again, it's just, it's just important to note uh, the arena that we're entering, particularly if we have in mind, as a lesson attempts to do, converse with people that have maybe a different worldview, then we need to be a bit more aware of the language that is occurring in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, it's not, they're not just words. These words carry meanings and it's important to be aware that they have different meanings to different people. Yeah. yeah. So I immediately um, can hear you muttering and saying, oh no, and that's you at home. Oh no, this is just another highbrow intellectual conversation about things that really don't matter. Uh, no, what that was was just a preamble to what we wanna talk about because when I think one of the concerns is, okay, is there anywhere or is there any place where I can cement a firm foundation? Mm -hmm. Is there anything, uh, it, it, in, even in scripture, that I can point to and say, okay, this is something that is unchanging. This is something uh, that I can have faith in. This is something that can propel me in my and that can serve kind of as a North Star mm. to my conversations with people that have a zillion different ideas that some of which might be rather odd to me. And the answer to that is, yes, there is something. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad the lesson uh, pointed us or attempted to point us in that direction. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the first uh, text that we want to look at today, which is Matthew chapter 7. Mm -hmm. So as you know, Joey, Matthew 7 is kind of the closing uh, moments, so the postscript, if you will, for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And it, it ends in, in this rather bold statement, right? Ask and seek and knock. This kind of interesting triune invitation that God gives us uh, to establish a relationship with him. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. And there is no ambiguity in those statements, mm. um, which I think bear a conversation all in its own, in its own right what does it mean to ask mm -hmm. and have these and have this assurance 
that the the requests that we make will be answered. Uh, nonetheless, for the purposes of our conversation today, we'll just say that there's there's this triune invitation to live with God. And then Jesus, as, as does so many times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, seeks to separate people into two groups. Mm-hmm. She, he looks at prophets mm. and he looks at uh, disciples. And as an outgrowth of that, as he does so many times in Matthew, he then tells a story, a simple story out of uh everyday life that would have helped people to understand that. And so with that context to the uh, to what we're going to read, let me let me just jump to verse 24. This is Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the words again are the whole uh, tenor of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Hmm. So that's kind of the way Jesus ends. This is his offering appeal. This is his big call, Mm. uh, if you will, for this sermon, this wonderful sermon that he gives. And what I find really interesting, Joey, is he doesn't finish with a call to orthodoxy. Mm. Notice that he doesn't say anyone who hears these words and understands them Anyone who hears the wor- these words and forms a doctrinal statement, anyone who hears these words and gets out a list of five or 28 uh, beliefs, mm. um, they will be like wise people. He said, instead of moving to theological orthodoxy, uh, Jesus moves to orthopraxy. Mm. And I find that really, really interesting because so often our conversations, particularly our conversations that deal with people that have different beliefs, tend to be about orthodoxy, mm. right? Tend to be about theological beliefs. Mm. Here it seems like Jesus is saying, if you truly are f- firmly cemented on the rock, then the con- the first step in your life as a follower of Christ is to concern yourself with right practice. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a great way of saying it that that Jesus is not so much concerned with orthodoxy as he is to orthopraxy. Jesus is saying that our beliefs should lead to a change in our behaviors. Mm. Right. Um, that's a that's a good point, and it makes sense in the context of what's happening throughout Matthew's chapter five, six, Mm -hmm. and seven, right? Jesus is giving them, not just telling them about God, Mm -hmm. he's telling them, this is how you interact with God. This is how you know, like that's where the, the, um, the Lord's prayer is. This is how you interact with other people. This is how you live out and follow me. And so at the end, it makes sense. It says, you've heard all these words, now go out and do them, right? When you do that, then you're building your house on rock and not just sand. Mm. So it, it does make sense in the context of everything that's happening that Jesus is focusing a lot on our 
obedience on our willingness to put our beliefs into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he, and it's it's really interesting that throughout uh, these three chapters, he begins with kind of this hyper these hyperbolic statements, right? Up with the law! I mm-hmm. tell you, uh, the law shall not pass uh, away. And then he said he goes into into kind of this this interesting paradox because he says up with the law the law is fantastic you have heard it said but now i i say Mm unto you and i think what he's trying to do is he's trying to say look the law is all fine and good Mm. and by law um i he means not an for, for the Jews, and we need to understand this, folks, for the Jews, there was very lif- little difference between the Torah and the rabbinic interpretations of the Torah. Mm-hmm. They kind of merged into one, right? So you yeah. had the Torah, and then you had um, the commentary on, on the Torah, the Talmud, uh, in order to have this hedge around the t- And so uh, these two things kind of almost would bleed in, into each other. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying the Torah is great and your interpretations of the Torah are wonderful, but let me tell you something new. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, this as I was thinking about this lesson, it, that became really, really a abundantly clear to me as I thought back at my earlier ministry. So as you know, Joey, um, in our conference uh, years ago, the requirement for ordination was to complete a certain amount of units in in CPE. And so either you would do those required hours and those units uh, on in a hospital that was close to where you were. There was no hospital close to where I was ministering at the time, so I had to uh, drive to San Diego during the summers and spend a week in, in San Diego to complete that. And I remember talking to a, to a young man uh, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and his father he had uh, a baby girl and his wife, and that really, there's some of these experiences that really connect with you, and and they connect with you because um, you can identify with the person, and the closer you are with an age or gender or ethnicity with this person, the closer uh, the, the story hits you. And so Linda and I were new parents. Um, we uh, we're around the same age as, as this gentleman. And so I, I would take that home with me. And I remember just watching my uh, one of my preceptors uh, talk to the man, and the man was terrified. Mm. Uh, it wasn't as much terrified of, of, of the dying piece. He was terrified of the not knowing. Mm. Um, and so if is there something else? Now, the this gentleman was not a believer. Is there something else? Blah, blah, blah. And he was feeling very, very distressed. Mm-hmm. And so my, I remember my preceptor talked about near-death experiences. Yeah. And he said, look, I've, I, you can take this for whatever it's worth, um, but we've done some research on near-death experiences and we realized that there's a lot of similarities, right? Uh, Cross-religiously and cross-culturally and uh, cross-age and generations. Anyway, that uh, there's there's a lot of these similarities. And so, I mean, I don't know if that's helpful to you, but I think, and I remember uh, she she finished telling this gentleman, I think Mm -hmm. it warrants a leap of faith. 
Hmm. The orthodoxy in me demanded at that point a study on the state of the dead. Hmm. Right? The orthopraxy in me demanded a moment for me to hold that internal discomfort that I might have as an Adventist, because mm -hmm. for Jesus, people always come first. And so it's, it's a difficult paradox to hold mm -hmm. uh, because there is this internal discomfort. And we've talked, I think, yeah. and you all know where I stand on, on the issue of what happens after you die. But then there's, the, there's this other part uh, where I think Jesus is, is calling uh, his disciples to be, to be discerning uh, on moments of orthodoxy versus moments of orthopraxy. And if you have a conflict, then ask, what is good practice? Mm. Uh, what, what do best practices demand? I don't know, just a really long thought. I'm dying to hear no. uh, your, your thoughts on that. And that's really good because you're saying that in that moment, there was a greater truth, a greater message, a greater practice that needed to be done than making sure that they were aligned with um, the correct understanding of the state of the dead in that moment, right? That that's not to take anything away from uh, um, how we Adventists have taught the state of the dead and what happens after we die, but that in that moment, there is some there was a need for you to hold the tension. I love how you said that, to hold that tension inside. Because if I were you in the same place, I would also be, right. I have this like urge to say, but no, that's not right. You know, when you die, it's it's like a sleep. And the, but the, the next thing that you'll remember when you wake up is Jesus calling, mm -hmm. you know, that that's what I would want to say. But in that moment, maybe that's not what needed to be said mm -hmm. and to be heard in that moment. And you see that um, throughout scripture because there are times where Jesus had opportunities. He had opportunities to confront some things that were not true and he chose not to, right? Slavery happened during his time and slavery is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't see Jesus mm. saying one word about slavery. He heals a slave, mm. right? He heals a servant, but he doesn't, you don't mm. see him going around challenging that. And that has always been a little bit uncomfortable to me, honestly, because I'm like, man, Jesus, if there's one human convention that you should have challenged during your time here on earth, a person owning another person, that's got to be yeah. it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and yet he, he chooses not to. And so that cho shows me that at different times, there are different messages and different truths that need to be communicated. And not all truth is created equal mm -hmm. for all times. Mm. And that discernment, that discernment um, is so crucial. And I think at the heart of that discernment is what you said, that people came first for Jesus. Mm. What is best for this person in this moment? What is going to help them to experience the love of God and get closer to God? And when I say the love of God, of course, we're not just talking about like a touchy-feely, warm, everything goes type of love. Sometimes love has the, has the iron of truth mm -hmm. in it, right? So yes, um, it's grace and truth. But in that moment, what is it that that person needs to hear? What is it? What practice do they need to experience in order for them to grow in their relationship with God and experience the love of God? 
Because the truth of the matter is whether it's uh, near-death experiences or whether it's, I love, uh, the lesson talks about necromancy mm -hmm. or uh, worshiping or communi communing with our ancestors. Um, they bring out that, that famous story in 1 Samuel of the Witch of Endor. Um, and I think the story, when understood outside of its context, can can do some really, really serious damage. Mm. Uh, because the story ultimately isn't about what, who was it that came out of the grave. The story is about Saul and how far Saul has fallen, right? Yeah. That's what the story is about. Yeah. Um, and I think when we when we fail to realize that, we, we, we tend sometimes to be really callous. And mm. I say that because mm. uh, near-death experiences or the fact that you hear a mother who lost a child saying, hey, I saw him or her in a dream and she came to me. Most of the times, the, the driving force behind that isn't, oh, I want to enact this end time deception. Mm. Most of the time, the reason why people have come up with these things, and again, I think you just said it and we need to reiterate and uh, throughout our time together, I feel like we're gonna have to do this several times because we're not saying we believe in this stuff. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is the driving force behind that isn't, I want to deceive um, myself or I want to deceive other people. The driving force behind that is I am experiencing so much grief that I need something to um, placate that pain. Mm. And when we enter into those sacred spaces, particularly as envoys and emissaries of Christ, and we choose orthodoxy, over grace, uh, the great deception, I think, isn't that people come up with constructs that are not in line with scripture to deal with grief. The great deception is that we then feel the need to, to punctuate and point that out. Mm. And in that sense, we deceive ourselves because we think we're acting like Jesus when we really are acting more like those Pharisees and those Sadducees. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, because when we point that out, we really have to be honest and examine our motives because a lot of times it's more about us mm -hmm. than it is about the other person. And that's when we know it's very, very dangerous. When it's us about us making a point rather than it is about helping the other person. Mm -hmm. Because there are, of course, there are times even when people are in grief, when people are experiencing loss, when people are facing their own mortality, there are times when it's important to give a dose of reality. Mm -hmm. It is, right? We, we were just in a really great um, um, clergy appreciation lunch mm -hmm. where, or breakfast where a, a, a speaker who, who has a lot of experience in this area um, shared about the importance of um, how, or how beliefs and even false beliefs can twist the dying experience mm -hmm. where people can can sometimes feel like, oh, um, because God can heal everything, I don't need to prepare for death, mm -hmm. right? 
And that, that is a false belief because just because God can care for everything doesn't mean that I need to prepare for the eventuality that I'll die because until Jesus returns, all of us are going to eventually right. die, right, which means right, right. we should be making preparations. We should be giving passwords to, to our, our spouse, making sure that they're taking care of financially. All of these things are important to do just because Jesus can heal doesn't mean that we're going to put off death um, forever, right? right. So, so yeah, there are times when doses of reality are necessary, when false beliefs need to be challenged. But really what it comes down to is why are we doing it? In that moment, what is best for that? I love how you said Jesus always put people over um, orthodoxy, right? He put G people at the center. So what is that person in that moment needing? And it's not always easy to know. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I, we've stepped into those spaces, those sacred spaces many times, and it's not always easy to know yes. what to say, what to do, when to be quiet, when to speak up. It's not easy. But we, but at the heart of what we do, even if we mess up in what we say, what's most important is that we're putting that person's needs and what, what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in their life primary in those moments. Because it's their story, yeah. right? Um, the key when you're confronting someone or you are given the holy responsibility of journeying with someone through grief is to recognize that it's not my journey. Yeah. It's their journey. Yeah. And I need to ride and go and fight. One of our colleagues uh, who has much more experience than he's a, he's a master <laughs> I know uh, you're at the about. bedside. <laughs> and I, he, he actually gave a really, really good uh, mental image to describe what it looks like when he steps into those holy places. Mm -hmm. And he said, you just ride the wave with them. Mm -hmm. You go wherever they want to go because ultimately it's not my journey. Mm -hmm. It's their journey. Now, again, I have my beliefs mm -hmm. and I'm pretty cemented in those beliefs. But when I look at the way Jesus confronted grief, mm -hmm. It strikes me that there was very little time in which he said, come sit down. Let me tell you about the great deception mm. of the end times. Sit and let's have a Bible study. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, another text that I think the lesson masterfully pushes us true to. It's a text that we've read a lot and we, we know well, right? Uh, John 11. Mm -hmm. So John 11, um, you have... You have this this interesting conversation uh, that is going on uh, with with Jesus and the superscript that my particular uh, Bible has for uh, what happens in verse 17 and on is Jesus comforts the sisters of Lazarus. Mm. So it says on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Mm. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now, Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where she was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw that her weeping and the Jews who had come along her, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man keep this man from dying? And you know what comes next. Mm. He rolls a stone. He says, Lazarus comes out, mm. come out. And then he says to the people around, take the, off the death clothes. Take off um the, these clothes that signify death. Funny, isn't it, Joey, that Jesus doesn't say, wait, 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 wait. This guy was dead. Don't touch him because that makes you ritually impure. Hmm. He says, take off the dead clothes. Take off the death robes that hmm. he is wearing. Because people matter more. Uh, than our than our orthodoxy. I'm not, we're not saying our orthodoxy doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but people matter more. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. It's fascinating to me that Mary and Martha they say the exact same thing to Jesus, but Jesus's response to the mm. two sisters are completely different. With Martha, he 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 does challenge her belief a mm -hmm. little bit and say, "Do you do you really believe that?" Mm -hmm. And she does. She says, "I believe," and he affirms that belief. But he doesn't do anything mm -hmm. at that moment. When Mary comes, he doesn't say any of that to her. Mm -hmm. He just he just goes with her, like the 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 emotion of the moment. The, what and it does seem like Marth, Mary's response is a lot more emotional. Like mm -hmm. she falls at his feet, she weeps, right? Um, and so. It's, it's not just, I mean, it seems like a different moment, different experience. So Jesus steps into that moment in a different way, mm. which it's the same death, the same experience, two sisters who say the same things, yet Jesus does different things for them because I believe Jesus understood that they needed different they needed things. Something different. Martha needed this, what Jesus gave, and what Mary needed was to see Jesus also weep. Mm. to see him also mourn before he even brought. Mm. I mean, because Jesus, Jesus knew what was going to happen next. He was going to call Lazarus. I mean, it seems like the plan from the very beginning. That's why he waits so long to come. So he already knows what's going to happen. It would have been easy to be like, Mary, why are you weeping? Don't you know that I am the, you know, I can bring him back. Right. To, sort of like what he said to Martha, but he doesn't do that. He weeps with her and then... He calls out Lazarus.
And John is such a master. John is such a master at, at doing exactly what you're saying, at painting a Jesus who gives us what we need. Mm. Um, the language is really reminiscent of the language that is used at the Pool of Bethesda. Mm. When John 11 says Jesus was troubled, it's the same word that he uses for the yeah. troubling of the water, yeah. for when the water moves. And then the, 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 the tears, right? Jesus wept. It's this, mm. it's this weeping that is also reminiscent of what happens when the waters move. And so those of us who have paid, been paying attention to John's gospel mm. know that Jesus is about to do something. Mm. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. It's this, it's this idea that pops up throughout the gospel. Jesus is about to do something. Mm -hmm. But what he does is contingent on what you need. Mm -hmm. And that, I know that it sounds like we're speaking in postmodern language. <laughs> but I want to take maybe the, the heat off that word a bit. I want to tone down the heat off that word. And I want you to consider, and by you I mean you friends watching us at home, what is more important? Mm -hmm. To believe in a God that gives you the list and says, here you go, this is all you need. This is true and it's immutable. Or to believe in a God that risks misunderstanding because he wants to be malleable enough to be an act in the ways that you need them to be mm. and act. I'll take the second option. I don't know about you, Joey. It's so true. Um, sometimes too, from my personality and my viewpoint, to my frustration, God doesn't always make things perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. Like if God really, if, if right understanding and belief was the most important thing to God in everything, just being able to clearly understand everything and believe, if that was the most important thing to God, then God wouldn't give us this. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't give us a collection of stories and poetry and, you know, prophecy. That's not what God, he'd give us a manual. He'd give us a textbook, right? On, on, on mm -hmm. how the world and the universe operates. That's what he would have given us. But that's not what he gives us. He gives us a collection of stories. He gives us the experiences of people. And it's, you know, and it makes sense when you see that framed in, in the words of, of, of Paul to uh, Timothy, when he says in 2 Timothy chapters 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is suitable for training in righteousness, right? So the whole point of scripture is not really about making sure that we can understand everything perfectly clearly. Not to say that belief isn't important. Belief is absolutely important. There are, how we believe and how we see God does frame the ways that we interpret the world and how we live our, mm, our lives. But the whole goal behind the right belief is to have an experience where we live out righteousness in mm -hmm. our lives, where righteousness begins to rule our hearts, mm -hmm. where God transforms us in, dare I say, a mystical way, right? <laughs> Not the mystical way that's sometimes used in other contexts, but in a way where God moves experientially within us mm -hmm. and transforms our hearts. Um, that, is, that is the goal 
of Scripture. Mm -hmm. That is the goal of the Word of God. That is the goal of what God has done in this world, which is why he gives us Scripture the way that it is. That is so, so rich. The fact that God speaks to us in stories. The fact that God continues uh, to to be caring and gentle enough with us, like, like you're mentioning. It's such a beautiful picture of God. Uh, belief is important. I think the question then that we wrestle with is, what is it that we believe in? Mm. And I believe in a person. And I believe in grace. Mm. And I think because I believe in grace, I don't consider the prospect of coming back time after time until I get it right. Um, because I think grace is enough to cover me when I get it wrong. Mm. I believe in grace enough to, to tell me and to uh, aid me in believing that my connection to the past, to those who I've, we've lost, is but an instant, mm. but a moment. Believe in grace enough to believe that Jesus will wipe away our tears and that we will see each other on the beautiful morning. But it's not because I poured over the text and then I got it right. It's because I believe in grace. And so I think what I would like before, before you uh, give us a thought for hold us through this week and pray. If we are going to believe in anything, believe in Jesus yeah. and believe in grace. And maybe that's enough. Wow. Actually, that's a great place to end. Believe in Jesus because he is the foundation of our faith. Mm. Um, I will say that passage we read in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus demonstrates an authority there that would have shocked mm. his Jewish hearers. Mm. He claims the same authority as God, wow. right? In the way that he speaks there, where he puts himself as a judge and all of those mm -hmm. things, for, for someone that a lot of people would have perceived as a human, as a rabbi, a teacher, to be saying the mm. things that he said, and yet that's what he's saying. He's saying, this is my word. Mm -hmm. This, 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 is, this is what's come from me. So what I say, what I say to you right now, it is the right way to interpret right. scripture because it is my word. And ultimately what God speaks into our lives is most important. Of course, scripture is, is, is the word of God, but God also speaks to us in, in many different forms and many different ways. We need to keep listening to the word of God, to be, keep listening to the Holy Spirit as we read scripture and allow that to form righteousness within us. Wow. Mull over that this week. Pray for us, Joey. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who is active in our lives. You didn't just create us and walk away. You didn't just come and rescue us and walk away. You didn't just give us scripture and walk away. You continue to be active and present working in our lives. And so we are so grateful to you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to continue to listen to you and to follow you 
to live out our beliefs in our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So may grace pursue you this week, and may you find in that pursuit the gentle embrace of Jesus is our prayer until we meet again.